Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Mind Your Body. Just last week, I was so excited to let you all know that we were having an average of 500 listeners per week when the very next day we broke our record and had 650 listens in just last week. So again, thank you all so much. And I'm really excited because I'm starting to hear more from you all and starting to hear more feedback. On a different note, the Conquer Your Goals in 2018 e-course has filled up all the free spots, but we still have three coupons left for 50% off. If you'd like to sign up for the course for half off, you can use the coupon half off 2018. I will paste that link in the episode notes so that you can easily access it. The course will be starting on February 5th, 2018. Once it's available, it's available at any time and you can take it at your own pace, but we will be having a group support call on February 12th. So as long as you finish the course by then, you'll be able to get the most out of this group call. And one more announcement, I am leaving for Thailand at the end of this week, so I will be less available in the upcoming weeks, but I have a feeling that I'm going to get really inspired in Thailand, and I may put up a spontaneous video podcast on the website and the Facebook page, so be on the lookout if you're interested and want to see some beautiful scenery and whatever else Thailand will have to offer. Okay, so... I'm going to do a real quick introduction to today's episode and today's guest, who is Gary Glickman. He is a body-centered psychotherapist and a somatic experiencing practitioner. He comes onto the podcast to talk about his body-centered work, very much embedded in relationships and the idea of having compassionate, authentic relationships. We had a great conversation. It was really inspiring. I got to experience through the video, some of the things that he does, and it was therapeutic. So I hope it's all the same for you, and enjoy. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. My name is Gary Glickman, and I am one of the facilitators for an approach to mind-body integrative healing work and human growth work called the threefold way, which is an approach that comes out of somatic psychotherapy traditions, particularly um, Al Lowen's bioenergetics tradition, with the addition of um, his student Robert Hilton's uh, focus on relationship and how both the self and the body are created in an ongoing way by the kind of relationships we have and the kind of authenticity we can reach simply by interacting with each other. Developmentally, we, who we know of as our self, the person we think of when we think of me or I, comes out of how we've been treated all, all through our lives, particularly developmentally, of course. But it's not only our sense of ourself, but it's also how our body develops. and. I'm guessing this isn't new to you, but I'm breaking it down just in case it's new to anyone else, that the the way our needs were met or not met when we were infants and children 
is reflected in how our bodies develop and how we carry our bodies throughout our lives. So what Robert Hilton and his student, my teacher, Michael Seek, have developed is this approach that focuses on authentic relationship be a, a byproduct of focusing on the body. What we do is we, of course, make it a body-centric study in our movement, in our um, holding practices of just allowing whatever whatever wants to arise when people are given compassionate attention. We primarily focus on what is a compassionate authenticity in this moment. And when we do that, what we've dis discovered, and it, lots of people have discovered, is that people want to drop their adaptations. They want to reach to each other successfully because I don't think there's a person on earth who's been always met when they've reached out. And it's our experience that without jargon, without very particular um, protocols, simply by making compassionate, authentic relationship, people let go of their false adaptations and come into their natural strength. It's very exciting when, when it happens. Yeah. Could you give us an example of what that means, compassionate authenticity? What does that yeah, look like in your practice? I would love to. I really most often use the name um, RCA, Radical Compassionate Authenticity. And what that means is showing people that there's an, an interest in creating a safe space in which anything can arise. Most of us, if not all of us, have been taught that to be socially acceptable, we have to push some of us, some of what's inside us away and present the world with whatever the dominant culture says is correct for men or women or adults or children. And that creates a lot of uh, pressure in the body. And so simply to say, I'm sitting with you, available to you in my authenticity, and I invite you to notice in your body what wants to happen. And most often, if people are not familiar with this work, they go into story very quickly. But as soon as people are given the opportunity to focus on what's actually happening in their body, their sensations, and the emotions and feelings that come up while they're having sensations, people become fascinated in their own process. And then what happens is, in my experience, people quickly push up against the edge of what they're used to being told is not acceptable. For many women, that's um, anger. For many men, that's grief. Of course, that's a generalization, but I, I find it in my clinical work that is very often true that women are um, often crying or um, collapsing in some way physically. And when I ask about it, what seems like grief, they say, I'm mad. And a lot of men who are pumping themselves up or protecting themselves with, say, the shield of their chests or something like that. And I say, well, you seem angry. Is that, is, is, is that what's going on? And they'll often burst into tears because they've been holding the grief as anger or holding the anger as grief. And so when we simply give attention and time 
and allow people to express what's been forbidden to express, anger, grief, fear mostly, people become energized, their life energy comes back. And what it usually looks like is sort of a five-step experience. We often notice that it follows the acronym TEACH. If you tune in to your own body and someone else's body and allow them to emote or uncover whatever emotions want to happen and then allow them to happen or amplify them, help people amplify them, what happens is that they get to a completion place or a collapse place in a more um, neuro-focused way. People do what Peter Levine pointed out is a, um, an unfinished sympathetic charge that was a protective or defensive act that couldn't finish. And when they're allowed to finish it, the body goes into a natural parasympathetic charge and relaxes or collapses or finds an immobilization that sometimes they've been holding for years and years without being able to get to. Mm-hmm. And then the, what we do for the uh, T-E-A-C-H is hold. There's some kind of holding environment after that. In our work, very often it's physical. It's um, literal holding. We, we work often in groups. But even in a dyadic situation, people felt, feel held when they're in an immobilization or a collapse or a low point in strength without feeling afraid. They can integrate the experience of going up and then going down, and they don't have to do it again, or they don't have to do it to, with the same pain and fear that they can accomplish with a therapist. What we discover is that people's resilience grows very quickly if you allow them to emote to whatever extent wants to come naturally, even if it's um, strong aggression. You know, one of the things I love to be able to do is to invite people um suddenly becoming aware that this is a podcast, but because I use the F word a lot, <laughs> but, uh, that's what's held in so often. But right. I say, do you want to say that? Do you want to say that aloud? Do you want to say that to me? One of the things we do very, very often is we have someone grab our wrists as hard as they want. I find that it, even when I work with bodybuilders, it doesn't hurt. Mm. Of course, they can push me across the room. I have to warn them that that's not the aim of the exercise, but they can grab and, and shout or scream or use whatever expletives they want and use their eyes to let out the rage that's been held in. What do you mean and by that? They, what, use what, their but, eyes. Oh, one of the things that we often discover is that as soon as people are asked to uh, invoke their held in aggression, they cut off their social connection. Mm-hmm. Often their gaze gets averted or they close their eyes. And so it, it's always invitational. But if we can encourage people to stay connected the way I'm staying connected with you over Skype right now, and I can, I'm going to do it with you just as a practice. If, I can, if I'm invited to really glare mm-hmm. and, use my, and show you with my face that I am furious with you, or just furious, furious with what happened 30 years ago. Oh, I feel better. I just did it with you. <laughs> so to do that and then have the collapse be welcomed and held, in our experience, really allows people to leave behind old business very quickly. You know, according to Dr. Stephen Porges, when you stay connected, for example, through the eye contact, 
that it's easier to stay or at least reach uh, the parasympathetic mode of the nervous system. So to relax, like you were talking about, is that the intention is to stay in social emotional connection, which would help help them reach that that rest state, even though they are acting from a, a sympathetic fight state? Yes, and I, I think the story is a little bit more rich than that, because to force people to stay connected with their gaze is to risk. Um, the next thing they do is, is simply dissociate. You know, I can stay connected to you. I can give you a rage look in my face. <sighs> Wouldn't do it right now. Mm-hmm. And if it's too much for me, if it's too scary for me, I can still do it because I'm used to faking my whole history. Of, you know, before I found my own healing path is about, basically having a set face that doesn't change regardless of what's inside. So I find that most people can do that. What they simply do is they keep contact and they dissociate. So our work is to um, find the middle ground to, to allow people to intensify their affect without dissociating. So very often we, we say, can you just peek out for one second and then close your eyes again if you want to? Can you mm-hmm. find someone in the room to look at, to um, make contact with Really, really quickly. And then they are what uh, Peter Levine calls titrating themselves and finding their own agency in keeping contact, but not being forced into contact. And that, I find, is what helps people reach the parasympathetic charge. Yeah, eye contact is something, is a big idea that I use in my work too, and especially in group sessions where there's such a difference between you know, we can all be in a room together, but not really be in the room together. But once you invite eye contact, it's it has a completely different feel. It feels present. You can see the change in affect and the change in mood. So I, I can definitely see how that would make a difference and help bring them back to the present. You're talking about eye contact itself. Just, yeah, just simply eye contact, staying engaged through that way. You know, the other side of that is that for most of us who have been forced into being social regardless of what's going in, on inside, it's sometimes impossible to access our core emotions. This is in my experience, in my experience of groups. It's impossible if we're forced to stay social. So I'm finding it easy to stay social with you in terms of our gaze. But if you were to ask me to, to explore inside, the very first thing I would do is close my eyes and experience the holding that you're giving me. I'm, I'm assuming you're continuing to look at me mm-hmm. um, just as a therapist. So I'm feeling your attention while I can release myself from the social constraint. And now I can feel it all. And so once I've accessed my uh, what's going on inside intensely, then I can sort of repair my developmental, uh, I was going to say traumas, but less pathologically, the places that I didn't get held. So if I'm feeling intensely and I practice making eye contact with you, or maybe even um, body contact before I make eye contact, and, and the whole process has been me having the opportunity to do it at my speed, then I can repair the, mm-hmm. the wound of having had to make an adaptation so long ago. My adaptation, as is probably clear to you, is, you know, I can be charming and 
fluent and social easily, but it's been at, historically at great cost, obviously. So for you, historically, you can be social and seem engaged, but you're not necessarily attuning to your own body felt experience. And it's it wasn't in service of helping you repair your past, you know, conflicts. Or, yes, okay. of course. That was my adaptation. That was the mask that I, I wore. And you said not in service. I, that would be a very generous reading of it. I would say, well, deeply wounding to mm. my own healing path. And, mm. But if that's the adaptation, I guess, you know, some people would call that a symbiotic character style. Because really what we're focusing on in a threefold way is um, character structures that Reich and Lowen and others have uh, delineated. And, and so whether it's a symbiotic, charming a rapport or a, a, um, an oral structure or a need structure, needlessness, both of those are very, um, I, I'm sure you experience them commonly with therapists. It's like, yes, we, we're very good at either seeming to put our needs, to have no needs or to put them far away or to be able to meet you and hold your attention beautifully. But I know that I can see just from looking at you that you are someone who knows what a great cost that is to ignore your own needs. Mm-hmm. Whether it's that sort of outward social adaptation or, or a more inward um, cut-off adaptation, a schizoid adaptation, to me there's still, um, on either side of the spectrum, it's about how am I somehow going to repair having re- reached out long ago and been disappointed or hurt. So this gesture of of reaching out and particularly engaging the the shoulders with the reaching towards someone um, is to me one of the centerpieces of our work. Can can you do this without um, giving up, actually? Reaching out? I'm just curious. Like holding out your arms? Holding out your arms toward another person. Mm -hmm. Can you can you Mm, make contact with me, I guess. Are you doing it too? I can't yes. quite see your hands. My hands yeah. are a little large. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened? I'm curious if you, if a feeling comes up in your body when you uh, reach and let your shoulders actually come forward as mine are. Um, I mean, I'm definitely focused on the tension that I'm feeling in my shoulders. That's what I feel at the moment. And so let me just do a little experiment. If you keep doing that and I do this, I'm crossing my arms a little bit mm-hmm. impatiently or doing a little antagonism. What happens? Um, I immediately had the impulse to cross my arms too. <laughs> yeah, we want to give up. I mean, it's happened to all of us. So <laughs> I had to stop myself from crossing my arms. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm not going right. to do it. So, this, is, this is really the center of our work. Can we just be really use our authenticity to, to be with people in a compassionate way. And the word game I use is the three C's. It's, it's common, but um, I find it useful to spell them out of curiosity, compassion, and courage. Because it takes courage on both sides of the equation. It takes a great deal of courage to share what's going on inside, particularly if, if you've been hiding it all your life. And it takes courage to stand and receive someone's rage, for example, or even their terror. 
um, new therapists who we train very often are weeping just watching someone else weep. And of course, that's, that's natural and it's, to me, a beautiful empathic response. And it's a low resilience moment because it's obviously bringing up so much in the, in the witnessing therapists. So when we've done this work a lot, what, what we find is that um, you can stay in your resilience while people are going through whatever intense direction of emotion they're discovering. And how do they build that resilience? Practice. Absolutely. By practicing, engaging core emotions while being compassionately held and witnessed. Mm. Um, this is during training or in actual practice or a combination of both? Well, I think that the, the training is primarily the practice. So in our training groups, we practice. There's no way around. Castaneda talked about people trying to um, take a helicopter to the top of the spiritual mountain. But there is no spiritual bypass. There's no healing bypass in this. It's really about um, daring to share core emotions and be witnessed and held uh, again and again so that they it's, it's conditional learning. We're really, we're teaching the nervous system that in fact, what um, early, early days taught our bodies, which is that it wasn't safe to reach out. It wasn't safe to be exposed with core emotions um, is no longer true. That actually for those of us who are lucky, the world is a safer place than it was. And we can, we have some people with whom it's safe to cry and rage and uh, grieve and express fear too. I guess, I mean, it's safe to reach out and expect to be received. Right. Even if that's anger or even if it's, I'm really angry with you. Urgh. Uh, it's okay for you're saying that you know you as saying the client at the moment it's okay for you to show that to me as another person in the group or as a therapist or both that it's I'm okay not making a distinction yeah yeah for you to um show your emotions and just experience your emotions in in the relationship within the relationship of another person exactly. and you're facilitating that either you as the therapist is holding this or that the other person, the other member of the group is holding this. So it's a reparative experience. Yes. And I would also stress that it does not have to be um, therapeutic context. We're really talking about authentic relationship and it's what I teach couples. Do try this at home. This is not, this is not just for experts to facilitate. This is really about how do we heal the fact that we're not taught how to be human beings anymore. We can do that T-E-A-C-H with each other forever, and, and it will never be too much. It's simply about, can I tune in with you? Can I make room for you to emote? Can I allow it in all the ways that therapeutically we allow and encourage? Can I create enough patience in, in what we're doing so that there's time so that you can complete what whatever the emotion is? Or... Collapse. I mean, if, if it's intense enough, you get a real beautiful parasympath parasympathetic collapse. You know, Pierre Levine, 
in his uh, somatic experiencing explanations talks about how one of the great um, triggers of trauma is being forced into um, a, a terror, immobilization from terror. And one of the healings from that, he points out, and, and, and so many others now, is recreating that immobilization, but without terror. So to do it, to find yourself exhausted or Exhausted, but safe, like still and not moving, but feeling safe at the same time, right? You, Versus yeah. like frozen in fear, right? Right, which is what, what caused the uh, tra traumatic experience or the adaptation even in the first place. Like children, are, so many children, so many former children are frozen in, in parts of themselves. Social avoidant behavior is a frozen immobilization, right? Mm -hmm. So... All of these sort of micro-immobilizations are opportunities to say, well, hmm, of course you can't go to a party looking like a zombie, but you could, that would really be the healing of it if, if you were among friends. I'm going to do it now in front of you. I know it's not so fascinating in a podcast, but if I, if I were to just be silent and really drop my affect and look um, like I'm sleepwalking and know that if you were my therapist, my friend, my lover, and you made, you made time for it. Maybe you held my hand or just sat nearby or sometimes just keep some kind of body contact so I can know that you're nearby without having to interact too much. My body wants to renegotiate that collapse, that immobilization. And what we find is that people love that immobilization if they're no longer in terror. They love it. They, <laughs> they, they become very adept at asking for all the all the goodies that we can offer we sing to them we hold them if it's in a group people go around and do something which is a worldwide tradition of just having loving hands and making a, a light container around people and sometimes we sing lullabies we just we, we use a lot of toning and vocalization sometimes it becomes a dance you know we do a lot of movement work in this every august at, on the big island, we do a week's workshop in which the mornings are all about um, mindful movement to compelling music, to practice and helping people getting in, in touch with their spontaneous impulses that no one else is directing. And as you know, that takes sometimes a lot of, a, a lot of patience if, if people are, are not used to feeling safe with their own impulses, right? And so we do that every morning. And every evening we do a kind of a individual investigation with, with group attention, the way I've been describing it. And that combination of mindful movement and deep group attention to what wants to happen makes these incredible, I don't know what to call them. They're art projects, they're therapeutic um, transformations. People, people want to dance. They want to, we have drumming, we have singing. Are you saying like, that that process unfolds? from the moving meditation? Like, is that a continuous process that first they yes. are, mo they're moving, they're kind of like following their impulses to move. And then what comes out of that is either more intentional dance with the group or drumming, what you're saying. Here in, in California, they, they have an organization they call medicine dance, which is really simply about following one's own impulse to, to silence and music, but it's also relationship based. And so 
at the beginning of the week, people are either good students or bad students. Either they stand in the corner with their arms crossed or they'll do anything that anyone asks. But what unfolds is that once they've been given permission in the evenings to really express themselves, then the morning movement practice becomes an extension of that. And people sometimes are ecstatically dancing or they're on a mattress in the corner weeping. And if they're not ignored, if they're simply, if, if it all becomes part of the fabric, people sometimes dance around them. Almost, I would say every time that happens, people, someone is holding them. So it becomes like a tableau of village life, really. Someone's crying, someone's holding, someone's dancing, someone's drumming. And it's just a space where everyone can be themselves, it sounds like. I would say the fact that you use those words it feels like a big blessing to me personally because this that's what it's all about it's how can we engender authentic relation authentic compassionate relationship with each other right and it's so beautiful when it happens and i know that i can see that you know that just from your own kind of work yeah and and i know that i've been my own groups like that where the more that i can be myself and authentically be myself and have that be accepted the more that I can be authentic in relationship with other people and ask for what I need and give what I need. And is this interweaving or integrated connecting process that we kind of builds off of each other? Kind of like what people say, you know, positive energy spreads, good energy spreads, you know, those kinds of things. It's There's a depth to that. And that's something that I think you're describing right now. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to say it. I think that good energy is another phrase for authentic, compassionate energy. We're really saying, am I welcome here? And when you have a facilitator who's not offering themselves authentically, it is a major block to anyone else's process. So obviously the most primary instrument is the body of the person who's inviting another person to uh, take a risk. And the upside of a therapeutic facilitation being a therapist is that we get we get practice healing all the time because if we're showing up if we practice showing up for other people we're teaching our own body that it's safe to show up on all these deep levels mm. and people really feel that they they feel somebody cares about me or if it's in a group which is what i love doing so much some community cares about me even if it's just one week every year there's a tribe i can go to that sees me and holds me and I don't have to be anything that I'm not. And to me, that is a definition of what healing is. Nice. Nicely said. For the people listening who are just curious and interested in this kind of process and even just want to start this kind of practice on their own, let's say they don't have access to facilita a facilitator at the moment or for some reason, what, what would you suggest that they do? What's a, what's a good way to start practicing turning in, attuning to your own needs in relationship with others and so on? I love your question. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to answer what, from my own very particular subjectivity, but I think that to find a, a mindful movement community is the life-changing opportunity for people. And that can look like anything. That can be a, a non-hierarchical, non-facilitated dance or 
I don't even like to use the word dabs because there's so many connotations. Yeah. It's simply a coming together, a communal moving to one's own impulse experience. If you can make a practice of that, my experience is that your life will change. I also recommend that people read uh, Robert Hilton's book, which is called Relational Somatic Psychotherapy. It's a collection of his lifelong uh, essays and speeches. And he's one of the great integrationalists of taking the tradition of uh, bioenergetics and finding healing through the body and adding relationship to it, authentic mm -hmm. relationship. And um, for any therapist, I think it would be a transformative read. I love what you said about just joining any kind of movement community. I think that's so well said. And um, that can be found in so many different ways, too. Yes. And kind of what we said before, like just a space to be yourself. And I do a lot of group work. And there's a, just a certain feeling of aliveness and humanness that comes with moving in community from an authentic and spontaneously expressive place. There's just, it's just very real. And, you know, I work with mainly suicidal patients, so I feel really good that they can actually feel the sense of aliveness even just one time. You were saying, even if it's just one week. I mean, I think the, the more frequent, the better, but those are some strong words. Find a movement community. Strong words. And I also stress that something you've said already, which is that it can be anything. It doesn't have to be special. I, I think there's a sense of, you know, I'm not up to that or I don't know anything about it. And I think that any, starting with any movement community where people ceremonially touch each other, I have clients who do um, swing dancing, things like that, where you're allowed, you come to a, a gathering and you are, the ceremony invites you to touch and be touched and make connection, even if it's just your hand or your elbow. This is a transformation for our dominant culture, which is so touch-phobic and mm -hmm. relationship-phobic. But of course, that's not my favorite. My favorite is, is a practice of allowing impulses to come, whatever they are, and inviting people's impulses rather than directing them. But my point is, even if it's something where it's directed impulse, I still think it's a huge healing potential. And that's a start, too, you know, if someone doesn't know or if it's too scary to start from kind of like just follow your impulse and that's way too open well there's you know there's always a starting point even if it's more directive just building a foundation for expression building that knowledge and self-awareness with your body and that can start with stretching yoga you know a zumba class whatever it might be anything bring people back to a sense of safety in communal physical contact well, I would like to thank you very much for this podcast. I'm so excited about it and really very, very honored and pleased to get to be part of it. Thank you, Gary. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget to keep up with me in Thailand if you'd like. And feel free to send me a message while I'm away. I'll get back to you whenever I can.